The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Now we turn to the book of Exodus, which is where we will primarily be with this series. And I'm in chapter 19, which is before chapter 20, where the commandments themselves are found. I want to spend today looking at this prelude scene to the giving of the commandments. And I need to remind you that if we really wanted to have the prelude, we'd need to read all 19 chapters of Exodus, and that isn't possible. But just reminding you that God called Moses to go into Egypt, lead his people out of a fierce captivity where they were held. Many amazing, miraculous signs were worked to show Pharaoh that he ought to let God's people go. He would not. And so there was a building up of the many signs that happened there right up to the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Finally, They left. The Israelites left under Moses' leadership. They came to the Red Sea. God opened the sea, that great scene. He gave them bread from heaven in chapter 16. I just want you to have in mind that all these things have recently happened as we come to read in Exodus 19 of this very important appointment of God's people, Israel, at Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. Listen to God's word as I read Exodus 19, beginning at verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. 
And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hands shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This is God's word. I can believe I'm fairly safe in the assumption to say that I speak to 98% of you who have at some time in your life, if not recently, seen the 1939 movie The Wizard of Oz starring Judy Garland, probably one of the most popular and well-viewed movies we all know. So I think most of you can picture in your mind a climactic scene I call up when Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion reach the midpoint of the movie where they had come to the green city Oz and they asked for admission to see the wizard. And finally they were allowed to come into a inner sanctum where they encountered a number of very scary phenomena a booming voice, big jets of smoke and fire shooting out, and this moon face projected on the wall that was presumably the wizard's face. And you can probably see that. I was terrified of this scene every time I saw it as a child. I am the great and terrible Wizard of Oz. You remember the cowardly lion's? Response, he went running down the hall and jumped through a window. He was so afraid. Well, you know, what we've just read, I suppose in a mind of a skeptic, they would say, well, God put on quite a show. Seems to me about like the Wizard of Oz, the smoke and fire show. What was it for? Was it designed to scare people? To make them run away? To tell them that God was awful and and meant them harm? If you think any of those things, you do misunderstand God's Word, and I hope to try to make that a little more understandable to you this morning. Before we study the Ten Commandments proper in Exodus 20, we need this preface, this prelude scene, leading us into that, and the revealing of Himself that God gave in the commandments. God was present The almighty, eternal, invisible God does not live on a mountain on the Sinai Peninsula. 
But he chose that place as a meeting place with his people. And he chose to reveal signs in nature that were amazing. The trembling of the earth itself, smoke, fire, a horn. By the way, this horn, probably a ram's horn, it is not said here or implied that a man blew that horn. It seems that it was a supernatural sound, of gray, very loud. There was thunder. There was lightning. It's a fairly unique scene in the whole Bible. And you might be a person that would say, well, things like that just don't happen. So I just won't believe it. But if you do believe that God brought these signs together, you need to wonder why did he do it? And what was he trying to say and show about himself? One thing I want to remind you that you may not be thinking about is the fact that it was near Mount Sinai in the first place that Moses encountered God at the burning bush, not far from here. So Moses' journey of obedience to be God's prophet and deliverer actually started near here. In fact, you could read about it in Exodus 3 where the Lord earlier said to Moses, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. So God had already set an appointment. Moses, go down there, say all the things you're going to say and do to Pharaoh. I don't know how many months or weeks that took. Long time, apparently. Finally bringing them out, getting this mass of people organized, moving out, getting them across the Red Sea, dealing with them for some period of time. But with the whole time, Mount Sinai was a destination in Moses' mind. I'm going to take the people there to meet with God. And so we, we have a scene here where you, if you understood what was happening, the Lord said something to Moses. He went down and spoke to the people. He came back and spoke to God. Then he went back and spoke to the people. This is an 80-year-old man going back and forth up this mountain, acting as God's intermediary and prophet. But he's doing it with excitement, knowing God The mighty unseen God was revealing himself by the mystery of means of his Holy Spirit. We talked with our young people in the communicants class this morning about the Holy Spirit briefly, how he reveals God's word to us, how he stirs us up to know that he's saying things. And that's what he was doing here through Moses. So we stand briefly on this ground with Moses this morning and look back on what God had done delivering his people and look forward on what he was going to do all the way down to the cross of Christ. And first of all, this morning, I want to ask you to see this point. It's something maybe you would not have realized, that before we come and understand God's law being spoken in the Ten Commandments, we must know this. God's law is meant to bless those whom he has already saved by grace. God's law is meant to bless those whom he has already saved by grace. That's seen here, and some people may not see it. There are many people who rather naively look at the Bible and they say, well, here's how I understand it. There were two systems of salvation. In Old Testament days, people were saved by the law. They tried as hard as they could. They brought their sacrifices. They obeyed the commandments. And if they did a fairly good job, God saved them through the law. Then in the New Testament, Christ came, and that was a a great act of God's grace. And now we're not saved by the law anymore. We're saved by grace. And that's the way many people think. Sorry, it's not in the Bible. It's not what the Bible teaches. 
What we have here is a God of grace and grace alone who has always saved people by his grace, by his initiative, by his mercy. We have the God here who came and delivered them out of Egypt, not because they were in Egypt saying, God, God, please, please, come and save us. God came and acted on their behalf in his power without their cooperation, quite apart from anything they did or sought after, he saved them. And now that he has saved them and delivered them, he's ready to give them his law. If you look at verse 4 of our text, I love what the Lord says here that's to be told. Moses was to say this to the people. You have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God was giving them a figure of speech. He, of course, is not an eagle, but he was saying, I, like a great eagle, came down. You didn't have anything to do with it, but I carried you out of a dire situation by my power and my strength. Eagles are often mentioned in the Bible in that way, by the way, as as saviors or rescuers. Those of you who know the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings saga and uh, The Hobbit know about eagles. Some literary critics uh, almost laugh at Tolkien because any time he gets his characters into an impossible fix where they can't get out any other way, the eagles show up. And the eagles swoop in and carry the hobbits or whoever it is out of their situation that they could not escape from any other manner. Well, God, in a sense, speaks of himself in that way. Deuteronomy 32 carries this figure. There we read the Lord speaking. He's speaking of himself in the second person. In a desert land, he found them. In barren and howling wastes, he shielded them and cared for them. He guarded them as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over them, over its young, that is, and spreads its wings to catch them. He carried them on his feathers. What a beautiful image. God, the strong mother eagle, guarding his nest, guarding his helpless young, making sure if if they were going to fall out of the nest, he was going to be right there to rescue, to save those who couldn't save or help themselves. Well, the emphasis is strong that this is what God has already done. There's no question that that's the first thing revealed here at Mount Sinai. I'm the God who has saved you. I'm the God who has intervened to redeem you and bring you out of Egypt. Then he goes on in verse 5 to now begin to introduce the idea that he wants to establish his covenant with them. Now, the covenant begins in what God graciously does without us, but it continues in how we respond. And so the Lord is saying, look, I want you, if I paraphrase here, to obey my voice, keep my covenant, and be my treasured possession among all people of the earth. I've taken all this trouble to rescue you, and it's because I want you to walk with me and be my adopted children and abide by my principles and love me and obey me. That is why he's going to bring the law, you see. So the law is a follow-up to God's salvation, not the method of salvation. The law is not a rule book in which God says, here it is, ten principles, Climb these 10 steps as best you can. I know you won't do it perfectly, but climb these steps and maybe you'll reach salvation. Not what God says. 
he says, I have called you and delivered you and brought you to myself now in order to walk and continue in a close relationship to me. Here are principles of how to know me and know my mind and seek after me. It's said that kings in the Near East in ancient days, of course, there were no banks or safety deposit boxes, so they would have their valuables, their silver and gold and pearls and diamonds, whatever they had, rubies, in strong boxes and probably have some really large, strong slave to guard these things and keep them close. And, and that kings would like to, if they could, open up their treasure box and run their fingers through sometimes and say, look at this, look, here's all my treasure. Today we get a computer printout and some investment house somewhere says, well, you have this much money and maybe you won't have it tomorrow if the stock market goes down, but uh, this this is your wealth. Oh, kings wanted to put their hands on it and grasp it and count it and let it run through their fingers. Well, there's a sense in which that's what is here. God has his saints, living human beings, whom he has saved and delivered by his grace, And he's saying, you're my prized possessions. I love to open up my strong box of my kingdom and see who's in it. And admire this kingdom of priests, as he calls them here in verse 5. By the way, that's echoed, we know, in the New Testament where we read in 1 Peter 2 that we are indeed a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. God has set us apart He has swooped down like the great eagle to rescue us out of the situation of sin and death. Now he prizes us, and he gives us his laws as little bonds and uh, ways of joining us to himself and saying, here, know my mind, know how I think, know what I expect of my children and how they best walk with me. Now, that makes the law look like something quite different than some kind of a barbed wire fence of a lot of prohibitions. Don't you dare do this. That's what many people think the law is. Instead, what we're seeing here is the law is a loving guideline for us to experience the blessing of union with our God. Secondly, then, in this text, this prelude to the giving of the commandments in Exodus 19, God asks his already saved people to revere him as the Holy One. There's a big emphasis on that in this text. The people were told to wash their clothes and themselves. They were asked to to, uh, observe a time of brief sexual abstinence. Even husbands and wives in their legitimate marital intimacy apparently were, were asked to refrain, not because they were doing anything wrong, but just that they would stand before God with a full concentration on him rather than one another. And so God was, in a sense, marking some limits, and he did this even around the base of the mountain. I don't know whether Moses put up no trespassing signs or what exactly, where the base of the mountain was, but it was made clear, do not trespass onto this mountain. This is the meeting place of God on earth. Don't presume. Don't push your way in. Just as there was a holy of holies in the tabernacle in the desert and later on in the temple of Jerusalem, a sacred inner space. It's not that God lived in that inner space. It was symbolic. 
But the people didn't just go barging in there and say, hey, you know, we need a quiet place to talk. Could we borrow the Holy of Holies for a while and have a conversation? No way. That was the sacred space that said, here dwells the presence of God. And now that was true, in a sense, a whole mountain was the Holy of Holies. And the point was being made that man must approach God on God's terms. For he is altogether different than any human being. He's altogether mighty and great and glorious. And we need reverence when we come into his presence. You know how they faulted Jesus in his day when he started to pray as people hadn't prayed before and said, Abba, my father. Abba meaning daddy. Oh boy, the Pharisees rushed in and said, how dare you call God daddy? I've never heard anybody call God that. That's blasphemy. Well, of course, it wasn't blasphemy for Jesus to call his father, daddy. And he was teaching us that we too could call God that. But yet, we did that only in the confidence of knowing him, the son. But even as believers in Christ today, we are not to be flippant in the way we come to God. I remember the old saying that used to be on car bumpers many years ago, God is my co-pilot. Ouch. I don't want God to be my co-pilot. If he's not the pilot, then he's not anything. Or people would say things like, the man upstairs, that always makes me wince. That just about tells you you're talking to somebody who knows nothing of the biblical God if you're going to refer to him in such a way. There's no place for superficiality or flippancy in the way we approach the Lord. There's a proper place for what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, not the deliberately terrifying fear that the so-called Wizard of Oz was trying to conjure up to make people run from him or make them you know, just absolutely hold him on the pedestal that he didn't deserve to be on. But the proper respect and awe of a God who is the God of the universe, who deigns to reveal himself and make himself known and come and redeem us and send his son. You see, the great problem with worship in our day is not, in my strong opinion, a problem of what kind of music to play. Certainly there's music that's more appropriate sometimes than other music. But that isn't the main problem. The main problem is a problem of reverence. Do we truly come into the presence of God, mindful of his holiness and his greatness? Psalm 50 verse 2 has a wonderful expression where it says, from Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, and he will not be silent Fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. Wow. If that's all we know of God, God is to be a sight of terror. But we do have to know that that is what he's capable of. And that is his almighty nature. But now you see, this God who said, don't even touch the mountain if I'm on it, is preparing to give his law to make his character and his being and his identity better known. Here's the heart of what I'm saying. Last time I I said to you 
The great purpose of the law is to tell us what sin is. That's true. But paradoxically, now I'm saying one of the great purposes of God giving his law is so that we would know who God is and what God is like. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, take a commandment. You shall not have any other gods in my presence. What are we learning? Holiness, singularity, uniqueness, almightiness. All right. He says you shall not lie. Why does he say that? Because he's the God of absolute truth. If he says to us, don't murder, it's because he's the author of life and the giver of life. When he says don't commit adultery, it's because he's the God of ultimate faithfulness in any covenant relationship. He would never break a relationship in which he has made a covenant with someone. And so he says to a husband and wife, don't break your covenant. When he says, do not covet, he's saying, look, you're running off thinking that all kinds of things in this world, if you just get more of them and more and more, you'll be happy. Don't covet things that don't make you happy, that don't satisfy. Covet me, knowing me. I saw a little interview with a man buying his lottery ticket for this gigantic sum of money, I guess, that's available for some ticket this weekend, and the, man, the, the reporter said, well, what would you do if you won? And the, the guy, at least he was honest. He said, I'd live in incredible luxury. Well, thank you. At least you're, you know, because some people are going to say, oh, I'd help other people. He said, I'd live in incredible luxury. Well, God says incredible luxury is not going to make you happy. Knowing me is going to make you happy. So the commandments that are about to come are a revelation of God's true character and the ways people relate to one another within his family relationship. He gave us his law because he takes pride in us and he wants to call us his own. Now thirdly, the lesson of Exodus 19 I think is is another lesson and I'd say it this way, God always reveals himself by a mediator whom he chooses. There's no question who the mediator is in Exodus 19. It's Moses. God did not communicate directly with every Israelite. In fact, he said, tell them to stand back. I don't intend to communicate. They'll be able to see, the, to see the phenomena. They'll see the smoke. They'll feel the mountain tremble. They'll hear the thunder. They'll hear the ram's horn. But I don't intend to communicate directly with the spirit of each Israelite. I need you, Moses. You will be my mouthpiece. You are my mediator. And so Moses was going back and forth between the Lord and the people. And even he, if we would delve into it, didn't get a full-face view of that he saw the fullness of God. For God says, nobody sees my face and lives. But Moses was, by the mystery of God's communicative power, given the message of the law. Now, That's great. Do we come to God by Moses? I think we look to a better mediator, a far better mediator than Moses. His name is Jesus Christ. The one who stands between us and our God and Father is the Son of God, Jesus, our intercessor. There's a marvelous passage in Hebrews chapter 12, It's speaking in metaphor or figure of speech, but it's a wonderful passage for summarizing a lot about 
how the Old Testament and New Testament gospel relate together. In Hebrews 12, the author says there, speaking to Christian believers, he says, you do not come to a mountain that cannot be touched. He's talking about Sinai. A mountain burning with fire or darkness or gloom or storm or trumpet blasts. There's no question what he's talking about, right? You don't come just to Mount Sinai to approach God, he's saying. You come instead to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And if you have any doubt what he's talking about, he's very explicit. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to his sprinkled blood. God has an even better mediator than Moses. Moses prepared the way. The law prepared the way for grace. We talked about that last time. Jesus came and perfectly obeyed the law in his thoughts, in his behavior, in all his actions. And so by being the only man who ever kept the law completely and pleased God in that manner and then dying for us, he became the better mediator. Now, sadly, there are people today who will not come to Christ or trust him, and and the only mediator they have is Moses. And if you report to Moses as your mediator, then what is God like to you? He's still the God of Mount Sinai, the God of fire and storm and trembling and keep your distance, you can't approach. But if you come to him in Christ... He's that different mediator. Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, brings you to God. You remember, I'm sure, in that Wizard of Oz movie at the end when the little dog Toto performed his main function in the movie by grabbing the curtain in his jaws and pulling it aside and unmasking the wizard who was just an old man putting on a great show. He was a harmless fraud as wizards go. There was no great and terrible wizard. I do have to tell you that if you do not come to God through the mediator, Jesus Christ, God is the great and terrible God. He is the God whose wrath would fall upon you like all that fire and smoke and trembling on Mount Sinai, but it need not be that way. If you come to him through Christ, the smoke and trembling of the mountain is quenched. We're going to sing that as we come to our final hymn in a minute. The true God of the Bible, who is the holy God, the almighty God, the fearsome God, is also the God who loved us and in our prehistory before we existed determined that he would form out of men and women in this world a people to belong to himself. And so he gave his law as a family behavioral code for those he has already rescued and already brought into his presence. By trusting Christ, we don't simply prepare to meet God someday. We do meet God. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in a human body in Jesus Christ. We do meet him. And he desires in meeting you that way to claim you and gather you in and make you 
his chosen treasure. Thanks be to God. Our Father, what a picture you give. These things are amazing that we read about here. The sights and sounds and trembling of the earth must have been something that just unhinged people. We do acknowledge you are the mighty God. You can do with the earth and do with humanity whatever you design to do. But thank you that we see what your plan really was, is to redeem mankind, to call out of sinful men, those who would trust you and look to you in the name of Christ and come and belong to you so that you could treasure us. We don't know why you would want us in particular, but it seems you have. You've put your spirit in so many here today who've called Jesus Lord. So, Father, help us come with hunger to your law to say, I want to know what it means to belong to this family and behave as God desires within this family. We thank and praise you for your revelation of yourself. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.